to the Culinary Saijiki Podcast. My name is Allison Whipple, and twice a month I'll bring you a conversation with a fellow haiku practitioner about the way that food and the seasons show up in their haiku practice. Visit www.culinarysaijiki.com to listen to the podcast, read long-form essays on these topics, and sign up to join the podcast conversation. You can also support the project at buymeacoffee.com slash culinarysaijiki. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 11. And first, I want to say thank you to Peter Schmidt for buying me five coffees this month. I am now 48% of the way to my goal of covering my web hosting costs for the year, and I am so excited about that. If you want to uh, support this project financially, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash culinary And Yes, the link is in the show notes. And uh, contribute uh, whatever is uh, right for you. And the uh, monthly supporter bonus recipe uh, should be going out sometime this week. So please do check your emails if you have contributed at any point this year uh, for that. All right. So it is a... Uh, cold Monday night in St. Louis when I'm recording this intro. And I do want to remind you, we have the community blog post at the end of November. Uh, The theme for that is harvest, and you're going to submit haiku via a Google form by uh, 11.59 p.m. Central on Wednesday, uh, November 23rd. And again, those will go up on the blog. And that will be the last post for 2022 because uh, just like I'm taking a little break between seasons with this podcast, it's time for me to sort of take stock about where things are and figure out how I want to shape this in the future. I do actually have a whole blog post about that uh, that I posted uh, late last week. So go check that out if you want to see the details. All right. This week, uh, I have Jerome Berglund as my guest. We actually recorded on a night much like this one. It was a Monday night, which is not when I usually record, but that was when we could make it work. Um, and it was it was kind of just a, a crazy night. Uh, I'm usually pretty good about being able to just leave work when I need to leave and, and get home. And so I planned this on that assumption that I would be able to do that and have like space and time in between. Um, getting home and recording and that's just not how things went down at all uh (laughs) i had to ended up having to work late stuck in rush hour and i raced in and pretty much just got out of the car and plopped myself down at the computer and uh opened up the zencaster app and just went for it uh so probably and we had a really i'll say we had a super rambly conversation uh uh, Jerome and I seem to be the kind of people that can just inspire each other to get on our soapboxes uh, for better or for worse. Uh, that that just seems to be a thing that's going to uh, happen. And uh, so we, uh, between that and the fact that I was just feeling kind of like punchy and hadn't had any space uh, <laughs> uh, to chill out before recording, um, I think you can definitely hear it. Um, and I, I have to say it was great fun. Uh, I had never communicated with Jerome other than email before this. This is the first time we'd ever actually had a conversation. And I just, I had a great time talking to him. So this is definitely uh, 
I think this is officially the longest episode. I could be wrong, but I, I think it is. And uh, I hope that you, uh, again, you have as much fun as, as, as I did. I know I say that every week, but it is true. So enjoy the talk. Jerome Berglund graduated from the University of Southern California's Cinema Television Production Program and spent a picaresque decade in the entertainment industry before returning to the Midwest, where he was born and raised. Since then, he has worked as everything from dishwasher to paralegal, night watchman to assembler of heart valves, which honestly sounds like the perfect set of professions for a poet. Uh, Jerome has exhibited many haiku, senryu, and haiga online and in print, most recently in the Asahi Shimbun, Bear Creek Haiku, Cold Moon Journal, Daily Haiga, Failed Haiku, Haiku Dialogue, Scarlet Dragonfly, and The Zen Space. So welcome, Jerome. Thank you so much for having me, Allison. Uh, Do you want to start with your first two haiku? Of course, yeah. Okay, let's see. And they said, never use science, cooking math. And they said, never use science, cooking math. Trying to do too much, wishbones sharp crack. Trying to do too much, wishbones sharp crack. And the first question I have, I do want to dive into the uh, the food content, but I am... Uh, so fascinated by the way you format your three liners in particular. Um, oh, you you. Um, sometimes center, some of them are totally centered, uh, but usually it's, you know, one or two lines will be left justified and then another line will be uh, indented. And I'm, that is a way I used to format. And then I sort of got trained out of it for various uh, various reasons, many of which have nothing to do with haiku and have to do with other uh, creative writing programs I was in. But I'm interested in what informs your use of um, indentation and how you choose to format your poems, especially those three liners. The the first one there um, with the the middle line sort of uh, indented, That's uh, I just started doing that recently, but that's sort of, um, I believe Kirouac sort of was, was a fan of using that approach sort of for Senryu. Um, it was something he started off reading the translations of, um, I forget who was a gentleman, but there were, there were a couple of the kind of classic guys that were translating stuff that he was, he was exposed to. And he started doing that. So I was reading that amazing collection of, uh, of Kerouac's, uh, different poems. And that, that just seemed like a nice way to sort of distinguish between the, um, the haiku with the sort of the kind of the symmetrical with the first and last line indented in the, the middle one, it sort of creates that beautiful sort of mirror image, which I really like a lot. Where they, yeah, it is definitely uh, that, you know, that formatting. I think it's, and one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up is we are in an audio format. And so it's sometimes hard to perceive that, but when it's on the page, it does look lovely. And now that I'm thinking, I haven't looked at any Blythe translations. In... That's what it was. It was Blythe. Yep. Precisely. Yeah, it was Blythe. I was like, I haven't looked at any in a while, but like, I'm now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh yeah, Blythe. There are many Blythe haiku that look like that. So I think I'm not sure where they got it from, but I love it. I mean, it's, you know, the traditional haiku, it's kind of the one line and it's got that sort of straight, sort of symmetrical feel to it. So it seems like they're maybe trying to kind of replicate that in an English format. It's wonderful. Yeah. 
Uh, so in that first one, um, uh, I, um, I responded to that and I, I picked that as the, the first one because I know for me, um, cooking math is something that can be, um, you know, like I, I once had a teacher who just said, oh, oh, cooking, it's just following the recipe. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, I am a person who, uh, though I know better, never reads the recipe all the way through the first try. And then I always get stuck on something or. Uh, or I'm very impatient and don't want to be precise. I, that is just a flaw uh, or a feature, whatever you will. But uh, I never want to be precise. Um, but then there's that flip side of like people who spend years learning to be precise, um, then don't have to be. Like it's for some things, like for baking, for, for baking you have to be a lot more precise. But I'm thinking of like, you know, my my mom. She's like she just has her sauce recipe. She can't tell you what the proportions are. <laughs> she just does it. It's like I mean, the, the math is in your heart. Cook. Like the better you are at cooking, kind of the more you can sort of be free and just sort of eye things. And my grandma, she made the best chili. And I mean, she never used, the, you know, any of that. She'd just kind of be throwing stuff in and somehow it always worked. And it was always a little different too, which kind of gave it a little bit of excitement. And sort of every time you're doing it, it was sort of a little bit unique. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I sort of, um, it makes me think a little about the restaurant industry as well. Um, I used to work, uh, I back of house for a uh, kick butt coffee in Austin, uh, which is, uh, just a fun little place. Um, and you know, the owner, uh, always talked about how customers want things to be consistent. You know, this, this is why for better, or for worse, like fast food is popular because you like, especially if you're traveling, it's like, well, you know what? I know what I'm going to get at a Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be the best thing, but it's familiar. And he had always wanted to be like, oh, we're going to chop our tomatoes fresh every single day for our salsa. Uh, but then, you know, even in Texas, a February tomato is not an August tomato. Um, and so he just started, he switched to canned tomatoes for the salsa and everyone liked it more because they knew what they were going to get. Um, and, uh, as, and then on the flip side, my favorite sushi restaurant in St. Louis, like the sushi is always amazing. Like no, I've never had anything bad there. Um, and, you know, like sometimes it's just like there's different mushrooms in the miso soup this week than there were last week. I literally eat there every Wednesday. <laughs> you, you know, you spot, um, you spot the subtle differences. I mean, that's wonderful. Yeah. And so I think about they are like and kind of what I love about it is like. You know, like I know, I mean, maybe there are people who would get mad that it's like different mushrooms this week or the miso is like, it's a red miso this week and not a white miso. Like there are probably people who just like not be happy. Um, but I'm always, but I sort of love that. It's like, oh, it's just not gonna always be this the same. And that's, that's kind of interesting. What's there's some French expression where they have sort of a different menu every day, like a Grand Prix or there's something, but, uh. I mean, you know, good restaurants, good chefs, like they're, they're not kind of going to be, you know, just replicating the same thing over and over. I mean, it's, it's comforting, but you know, you, you want that sort of spontaneity too. I mean, it's hard to find that balance for sure. I think it is. Um, it is, it is sort of those two kinds sides of the same coin where I like, absolutely. Like people want to know, like, especially like you want to know that the salsa is going to be the same every time. <laughs> um, there's actually a Mexican. <laughs> There's a Mexican restaurant up the street from where I live now, and it's it is uh, on par with Texas quality. Um, 
but it's, it is definitely interesting. Like the, the salsa is not the same every day. Um, I mean, it's the same recipe, but it's like, oh, sometimes the tomatoes are just a little more vibrant today than they were yesterday. And, um, I appreciate that, but I certainly understand that, that other, that flip side of like, I just want my salsa to taste the same today as it did last week. I mean, in a world with so many terrifying variables, it is nice to sort of have, you know, Campbell's soup and you're like, this is a Campbell's soup. Like I know what this Campbell's soup is going to taste like every week. Yeah. Yeah. You would yeah. want to just survive on that. That'd be miserable. <laughs> you would, but um, I think even if something as little as, as like condiments, um, you know, my partner is a really good cook and he like sometimes makes these amazing fermented hot sauces and they are delicious. Uh, and if I'm eating hot sauce at breakfast, like it's gotta be my Valentina. Like mm-hmm. I cannot start the day with fancy hot sauce. I need to start the day with Valentina. <laughs> like you know, just classic Tabasco sauce, like on your eggs. It's like, you know, you know what it's going to be, no matter what eggs you're getting, you know, that Tabasco sauce, it's, it's standard. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the um, second haiku in in uh, the wishbone uh, sharp crack. I'm I'm in. I'm super interested in that one. Um, it's just because it's it's um, certainly I understand like trying to do too much. Story. And also, I the wishbone ritual when I was growing up was like this very deliberate thing where like. Um, my my dad would like leave it to cure on the windowsill for like oh. days until it got super dry and broke better. Um, so uh, so to me, like this was an interesting one because like um, those two things that was a really intense juxtaposition because like the the thanks post Thanksgiving wishbone ritual was so deliberate. So I'd definitely love to hear more about what inspired this particular haiku. Yeah. Um... It's funny you mentioned that I was, you know, you, you kind of picked these these pieces we we're going to talk about. And I just jumped on the Wikipedia and I was reading it. I mean, wishbones, apparently, you know, dinosaurs had wishbones. And I mean, this whole ritual of kind of the thing, it, it goes back to like ancient divination for trying to determine like how many crops they were going to have in a year. I mean, it was a really serious thing that sort of got all this different sort of sort of mythology and sort of belief kind of built into it. And when I was writing it, I was kind of just thinking about, you know, my family are kind of a lot of, you know, very kind of just they, they squeeze stuff in there and they try and do just a crazy amount of stuff. And it kind of just, you know, there's sort of a um, there's that lily of the valley allegory. I've kind of keep coming up lately where it's, you know, they're, they're going to be OK. You know, it's kind of a kind of a Buddhist thing, you know, just these lilies of the valley, like you could do all you want, but it's like they're going to be fine. But still, we try and, you know, you know. In your average day, you you know, we just feel this maybe sense of drive to just squeeze all this stuff in there. It's, it's kind of a Western thing. I mean, you know, other cultures don't have quite the same just need to produce and need to. And yeah, you <clears throat> like I was looking at, the, at your, uh, you know, you mentioned coffee a couple times on your, you know, things that kind of inspired you and brought you to sort of the, the culinary side And I mean, our our culture, you know, all this stuff working, you know, three shifts a day, working double shifts, working night shifts. It's like, we're not really built for this stuff. You know, we really need like caffeine workforces just feed you caffeine because it's like you couldn't be productive enough without it. So that was kind of what went into this, uh, this idea and the wishbone just sort of the, 
you know, kind of the almost the three noble jewel, four noble jewels of Buddhism that sort of, you know, desire and the suffering being rooted in sort of the desire and kind of ending it being, it's like, it's easy to understand in the theoretical, but practically it's so hard to kind of, you know, incorporate that into our lives. We just want to do stuff. You know, it's like you had a full day of work, but you're like, I got to do this awesome web, web series. I mean, a podcast. And it's like, <laughs> We're loving it. I mean, it's great that we're doing it, but it's like you can just see that wishbone, just sort of the tension, kind of the, and then you hear it crack. So that was kind of the yep. inspiration behind this thing. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. <laughs> well, and and sooner or later, I'll I'll get into a rhythm. But this is this is my second job in four months, so you know, life is just life just got a little off the rails. It's- <laughs> It's great that you're working. Oh God, this is, I mean, these, these, uh, pandemic years have just been tough. I mean, I've been, I've been really struggling between stuff too. And it's like, I've done some really interesting stuff, you know, being a, being a poet, you kind of tend towards sort of the, the Bukowski, sort of the, uh, the factotum sort of lifestyle of just doing like weird stuff, just doing like whatever interesting, weird stuff you can find. And it gives you a lot of inspiration, but it can be a little, a little challenging too, for sure. It definitely can. Well, do you want to move on to your next two? Yeah, of course. Let me read. Okay. Uh, QP mayonnaise, white but trying. QP mayonnaise, white but trying. Tongue on platter. Other parts somewhere distant. Western dressing. Tongue on platter. Other parts somewhere distant. Western dressing. Uh, so the Cupy mayonnaise one, first of all, this one was the one that made me laugh of, of all the ones you sent. And I always, uh, I do, I admit I have a, a soft spot for haiku that make me laugh. Um, and since this is an audio format, I do want to mention uh, there's a double colon uh, uh, between uh, the words mayonnaise and white. Um, and I, I, of course, I always have my own reading of things and it's not always what the author intended. Um, but um for those of you, for y'all who don't know, QP mayonnaise is uh, a Japanese brand of mayonnaise. Uh, I am quite fond of it <laughs> as, uh, as well, honestly. Um, like if you're going to make Japanese pancakes or other things, it's if you're going to make onigiri rice balls, it's useful to have. Um, uh, but uh, to me, it's uh, this is a haiku that sort of speaks to like a sense of uh, orientalism that many people uh have um i might be off base with that but that's certainly what uh what came up uh uh for me yeah absolutely i mean it's tricky like i'm i'm reading that book cast right now um it's a it's an amazing mm-hmm. book but it kind of gets in recently i also read that uh, how to be an anti-racist book but it's like mm-hmm. you, know, you look at you look at sort of just this race and race in general and it's sort of this arbitrary you know problematic construct but it's like it's still everywhere and it's still we're all kind of trying to you know separate ourselves from it and sort of just forge these more egalitarian sort of approaches to stuff but you know you think of mayonnaise what was that that comedy movie a couple years ago um undercover brother did you ever see that by any chance i didn't see that one but i I do remember like seeing promos for it I mean, yeah, okay movie, but uh, there's sort of this association with like, you know, white people and just love and mayonnaise. So 
the idea of QP mayonnaise, which is sort of a, you know, very sushi oriented sort of a, you know, Eastern mayonnaise. And, but it's very popular sort of in the West too. I mean, it's got a huge international following and it kind of, you know, is associated with making sushi and with, I mean, it's just delicious. It's got, I believe, yolks, a lot more yolks than your average mayonnaise. So it's got more of a savory flavor and it's kind of a, it's just rich and tasty and but yeah, just kind of yeah. It has more yolk, and I believe it has more sugar as well. Yep. And it has, um, it has a little more of a golden color to it. Yeah, that gives it that that yellowy sort of look and that distinctive sort of flavor. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I, I I did forget until just now. I'm like, oh yeah, mayonnaise. That's like us considered like the white people condiment. Uh, yeah, it's although so cool. it's uh, the joke, the crack. Yeah, uh, my my partner said uh, when he was he spent uh, a summer teaching study abroad in Denmark, and he said, "If you think Americans eat ridiculous amount of mayonnaise, uh, just just go look at how much the Danes put on everything." The Danish, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Uh, oh awesome. yeah, they love it. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's better than a Big Mac. You know, there are some like you think of you know the the Western meal, and it's like just McDonald's. I mean, it's. Mm-hmm. Like what was that that really good uh, train to Busan where they've got it opens and the guy's eating like a big eating a Burger King and it's like ugh I mean the culture of the West is just like it is sort of a little bit embarrassing at times when we're oh is that the the remake of it um I haven't seen train is, there, to Busan? is there a remake of that I don't know I've only seen the Korean one and I don't recall there being a Big Mac in there but um it, the reason sorry, I saw Train to Busan was cuz people were mad that there was an American remake being made of it and I was like well I guess I'd better go watch the original <laughs> Yeah the original spectacular I mean I was I wish yeah. I would have seen it sooner I don't know about the remake you know I wish they would stop doing that like it's I mean I, I get that they want to expose it to a international audience but it's like it's dubbed it's subtitled it's like you know Just watch the movie with subtitles yeah, <laughs> uh, that's that's my opinion, and I know, I know not everyone's gonna agree with me, but I'm like, just watch it with subtitles. Yeah, um, I also I can't deal with I can't deal with dubbed films. Like I know, and like this is a thing my partner like struggles more with subtitles than I do, and I'm like, I can't deal with dubbed. It's like I can just tell it's wrong, and it just makes me angry. <laughs> well, it depends on the dub. I mean, there are just terrible dubs, and there are some pretty good ones, but it's like they're getting better. They used to be just comical when we were when we were kids. They were just not good. <laughs> they were like hard to watch. Yeah, and the last time I tried was uh, with Squid Game, and we lasted ten minutes, and then I'm like, I'm sorry, I just I like have to switch. I thought. Oh, I loved Squid Game. I didn't love the, the uh, I didn't love the dubbing. For sure. It can yeah. be just, I mean, if you're looking for their mouths to match, it just, I'm sure it just sets you off the whole time when they're not quite. <laughs> yeah. Um, Squid Game is, is uh, amazing. And there are some, there's an inter- some interesting food motifs, but it is like one of the most brutal television shows ever made. Yeah, just, it, was, it was pretty intense. I mean, it was, I think they're making a sequel. I can't wait. What a show that was. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm going to watch it, but I'm going to have to like wait and, and like till I'm, I don't know, on vacation or something. Cause I, I had nightmares, but I it's still watched perfect. it. It'll give you nightmares, yeah. It's dark it stuff, will. but I mean, kind of socially conscious stuff too. I mean, the, the yeah. ideology of it was just beautiful. Yeah. Uh, and then tongue on a platter. Um, this one was super interesting. Uh, first of all, because I'm not really sure. I wasn't sure what Western dressing was, but the word dressing can also have a couple of different meanings. Like dressing can mean more like stuffing. Uh, dressing can mean more like a sauce or a condiment. Uh, dressing can be like stuff in a, you know, in a bottle in a grocery shelf. Um, and I think that's part of like, I'm like, I wonder what Western dressing I'm like means. Um, but then tongue also like 
that's organ meat, um, which a lot of people have very mixed uh, feelings about, uh, <laughs> especially like uh, depending on where and how you grew up and how it's prepared. Um, I've definitely uh, eaten some and it was fine, but also I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and like probably if you told me what it was, I probably would have been real suspicious. Um, so I'm, I'm super curious about, and I think there's just like a lot of um, super interesting implications behind that haiku that I just can't quite parse. So I'm very interested in what you have to say about it. I mean, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned tongue. Tongue is like, and I, I should be a vegetarian. I try and eat, you know, as close to like vegan as but I still eat plenty of meat. But but a uh, tongue, you know, in a taco, like a lengua taco is delicious. But in it the context, is. 100%. I mean, you don't, you, know, you don't want to look too much about it or think too much about it. You know, the mouth feel like if you're, you know, it's a little spooky when you're thinking into it. But uh, in the context of this haiku, I was sort of thinking about you know, we, I was kind of, I'm in Minnesota right now and we spent a lot of time in the Dakotas, you know, growing up and there was, you know, the Buffalo, the Buffalo and Bison are kind of, they're coming back. I mean, they're trying to kind of, but they, you know, they used to roam all these areas and they were just hunted down to the point of nearly extinct for mostly for their tongues. I mean, it was kind of a, you'd see photographs of it and there'd be just these massive, just stacks of, you know, dead Buffalo and they just cut the tongue out, and leave the rest to rot. It was just this horrifying, you know, somehow I, I forget the story behind it, but you know, there was sort of a, it was like considered a delicacy for the, the upper class, the buffalo tongue. So they just go and they kill the buffalo and just leave all the meat just sitting there. And it's just kind of a, I mean, the image just makes you think of this sort of conspicuous consumption and sort of this just grotesque, almost, you know, kind of colonialist stuff associated with, you know, manifest destiny and sort of expropriation of land. And, and I mean, you know, the, the tongue, when it arrives in one of these restaurants and you know, in whatever Western area, I mean, you're just kind of seeing this beautiful tongue on a platter. The the rest of it's all just, you know, somewhere distant in a pile rotting. And that image kind of just makes me think so much of this, you know, kind of the neo-colonial, you know, different things that are going on. And I mean, we hope that we're moving past this stuff, but it's like all these cell phones, you know, they're, I mean, who knows where all these different minerals that are in them are coming from. I mean, some of the other ones in here, you think about supply chains. Like I love chocolate, but it's like, if you really look into it, there are enslaved people in these chocolate mines. Like, I mean, it's, it's horrifying, you know? It really is. And I mean, it goes, it goes beyond um, even food. And that's one of the things that really taught me to have grace with myself about just living in capitalism and not being able to be perfect. Um, is the things like, uh, I mean, I do not have an electric car. I could not afford one the last time I was buying a car. And honestly, like, thank goodness I didn't because I do not live in an area with charging stations. <laughs> but like, um, unfortunately, the lithium that goes into all of the batteries, including for our electric cars, uh, is kind of causing horrific environmental devastation in northern yeah, Chile and in Bolivia. So, so we just, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, I mean sure it's not gas and also it's not uh it is not the magic solution that a lot of people claim it is i mean like you said about capitalism like they use that expression there is no ethical consumption i mean you could drive yourself batty if you thought too much about because everything we're touching you know everything that's sort of you know our whole lives of these computers we're on that were you know all the clothes we wear it's like i mean all we can do is just sort of be aware and try and you know boycott and try and invest in good things and try and you know support 
I mean, it's moving the right direction, but it's like there is just so much like frightful stuff in the world that it's, I mean, it's better to be aware of it at least, but like you said. Yeah, and it's it's about striking the balance, you know, for me, it's like, I still drive a gas powered car, but it's, uh, oh, like 12 years old. And I like, I just try to keep it in good repair. And my laptop is uh, geriatric by laptop standards, but like- It's still going, like, I still, you know, like, as long as it's still functioning, uh, you know, enough and like, uh, you know, I kind of need one if I want to be a, a writer and make things. Uh, and like, I try to buy used when, when possible. And it's not always possible. And you just sort of have to, yeah, you have to give yourself grace that like, you're just a human and you're doing your best. And there is literally only so much you can do if you're going to survive. <laughs> I think our generation, I mean, just sort of not throwing stuff out, keeping stuff like, you know, car, keeping cars lasting as long as possible, you know, not, not just buying a new laptop and throwing the other one in the trash every two months. I mean, some of this stuff, our parents' generation, I mean, they understand, but it's like, I feel like there was a lot more sort of, you know, disposable clothing, disposable, you know, and I think our, we, we've, the next generations and the ones hopefully coming after us are going to do a lot better job of just, you know, repurposing stuff, keeping stuff functional. I mean, they could, if they just decided on a manufacturing level to, you know, not plan obsolescence and everything. I mean, there's a way that all the, you know, you wouldn't have to repave the roads every two years if they just decided to. It's just sort of a matter of making it profitable. Or- yeah, and I, I think we're really trying and I think there's going to be a lot of solutions. And, you know, for me, it's like, yes, my my car is still gas powered, but like in the long run, I think it's better for me to just keep this driving than buy a new car, uh, especially because, you know, they can, you know, uh, all these you know, these display panels and things, those can only be guaranteed for about five years. And, you know, uh, with Teslas, there's only so much you can do to repair them after the battery goes because of the way it's wired in. Um, And so to me, I'm like, well, what, you know, is this really the solution if you can only guarantee like the electronics will work for five years? Like, are we just going to end up with like a bunch of non-repairable cars in a landfill? Like what is, what is the plan for repurposing parts, you know? I've been uh, looking for a new vehicle. My car just finally kicked the bucket and I donated it to charity. But uh, apparently, you know, all these new cars built within the last 15, 20 years, like they only last up to like a little over 100,000 miles. Whereas the older ones, they always, you can get them up to three. I mean, you can keep, you know, swapping stuff out and, you know, they, they, they're oh, yeah. just not, you know, they've got all these little computer chips in there and it's like somehow they're, they're only made to last a pretty, pretty short, you know, finite. And I mean, if we, you know, if we're, recycling all those parts you know i mean there's a way that could be sustainable but it's like it does worry you when you know this great pacific you know plastic thing just keeps building and they keep you know it's it's a spooky time for environmental stuff for sure it is and but i i hope that i have i have faith that um the people who are active in that line of work are are coming up with some genuinely good stuff and this is not to like hate on electric cars like um uh, it's more just I get a little uh, frustrated by all of the greenwashing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, like if well, uh, an electric car is good for you, great. For yeah. sure. And it's electric cars are not affordable to the public. You know, they're affordable to like this small 1% of people that can sort of drive them to feel trendy and to sort of pat themselves on the back. But it's like they could make all this stuff readily available and they're still kind of choosing not to, you know, until all the infrastructure is owned by the same people it's kind of like fossil fuel. It's like, as long yeah. as the same people own the electric, own the wind, own the hydro, it's like, as long as they're still profiting, they'll do it. But it's like, they have to own every dime of that. Otherwise it just won't be 
you know, viable. And if we had more infrastructure, I think there would be room for more, you know, actual repair people who could work on these. And that, I'm like, you need to be like, people need to have the right to repair um, and stuff yeah, needs yeah. to be repairable. I, I'll take a stand on that. <laughs> no, what we, I mean, like our parents, our grandparents' generation, they could do all the stuff in-house. I mean, they didn't need, you know, they've kind of created this sort of, you know, this sort of curated weakness where, you know, they don't want, I mean, it's not in the interest to have people be self, you know, self-sustainable. So it's it's tough to sort of negotiate that with, you know, with industry or with the, you know, specialized car repair people or the manufacturers. I mean, it's tricky. It is. And it's also recognizing the limitation of like, you can't do everything. Like even, you know, even, you know, I think of my grandfather who did have to do a lot of his own work and he still couldn't do everything. Um, And so you need to have places where you can actually like hire someone competent, where you can actually get help. And that's great. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff, like it's creating jobs and it's creating specialties. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just like, it's just sort of irksome that, you know, they could, you know, make this stuff last five times longer and they just sort of choose to, you know, have to replace it every, every X number of years. And yeah. And I think it's not even always conscious choice. It's, you know, these are the limits of the electronics we have right now, you know? Um, and I think a lot of people are doing the best they can with what we have right now. Um, and it's not necessarily like a conscious limitation, but it's still a limitation. Absolutely. But it's exciting. I mean, I didn't think, you know, these electrical, I mean, are all cars electric in Europe right now? Like all these, are all cars not electric yet. in China? They still haven't passed the full? It's, it'll, it'll, I think it goes into effect in like two years. It's coming though. I mean, we're right on the cusp so. of it. So that's huge. Oh, yeah, it's definitely coming. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, we have diverted uh, pretty far from the top. Oh, sorry, not the, not the rant about uh, politics. So. I love ranting about politics. Thank you for That's just kind of how it goes on this show. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I, I need my space to do that. Uh, anyway, uh, you want to read your last two for us? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, yoke on my shirt, scrambled signals. Yoke on my shirt, scrambled signals. French vanilla cools a dark roast, searching for crystals. French vanilla cools a dark roast, searching for crystals. Uh, and these last two, I... Uh, First of all, they invoke breakfast, which is why I paired them together. Um, but also they rely on some, I think, uh, pretty skillful use of wordplay, which again, like, is a thing that people have, like, mixed feelings about. But I'm to me, I'm like, if you can use it artfully, then yes, I am totally here uh, for it. So we've got, like, the egg yolk spilled on you uh, and then scrambled signals. That's in the context to me of some form of human communication or another. Um, but of course, then it's the it's the play on uh, scrambled eggs, uh, <laughs> and so like maybe you spilled on yourself while you were beating the eggs, uh, you know, or maybe it's not that literal. Um, but I I liked that uh, I appreciated that wordplay there, and I'm uh, interested in, in again and how this haiku came together for you. I love hearing about people's processes. I think that one started as a shasta. I think there was some literal scrambled egg on my. <laughs> egg on my face or on my shirt but uh but yeah it's it's hard like you said with the to do really wordplay like i don't i don't often succeed at it you know it's something where it's like you, it's really easy to fall on your face and to sort of just be cheesy or you know just sort of be lame and 
But if you can pull it off, I mean, a lot of my favorite poets will pull it off beautifully. And it's something that in the original Japanese, I mean, you'll always read about, you know, Issa or, you know, Busan just using these like brilliant sort of puns that don't quite translate. But I mean, I feel like puns have a strong haiku sort of, you know, tradition to it that doesn't feel, you know, disrespectful or sort of, you know, outside of the classical. Yeah. And I think, I think I, my hypothesis is that some of this resistance to, you know, puns um, or other forms of wordplay does come from the fact that like uh, some of this really doesn't come across well in translation. Um, It just doesn't. Uh, And that's one of the challenges. Um, I'm still glad we have these works in translation. Um, I do know that in like the classical Japanese tradition, like, of course there was an extensive, you know, poetic heritage that was more than simply uh, renga or, um, you know, tanka uh, or haiku. Um, and that there were certain for like verse contests where uh, you were expected to be able to employ a certain level of, of wordplay. Um, and so, um, but you know, it is, it's super hard. You pro- I think you have to write like a hundred bad ones before you get a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of them go on the cutting room floor, but it's like once you, you know, it's just, so much of stuff is kind of a, uh, you know, numbers game where you're just trying stuff, trying stuff, throwing stuff at a wall and eventually something will stick. And when it does, it feels so good. It's so worth it. It really does. It really does. Uh, and then French vanilla. Um, in that one, the crystals to me, I, searching for crystals. I mean, that can have like, um, uh, to, so first we've got like, I think of like instant coffee and like instant coffee is often referred yeah, to like yeah. your coffee crystals. Um, but then I think about sort of like sort of the mystical aspect of like a tea reading or a like tea leaf divination. Or I think there are is like a form of coffee divination. I'm pretty sure it doesn't use instant yeah, coffee. Yeah, Turkish coffee is big for that for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, and certainly like there's sort of the mystical aspect of like crystals in general. Um, uh, so that was where my mind went with this, but again, I, I, I love, I'd love to hear your process and how that one came together. Yeah. I mean, somehow all these, you know, when you're kind of just sitting in, this is a little bit more of that supply chain stuff where there's so many of these sort of, you know, just deeper meanings and sort of, you know, sources rooted in all these things in our kitchen. And I was just kind of, I love French vanilla. I love dark roast. I love, you know, crystallized sugar. I mean, all this stuff, like you look at it and there's just this like rich sort of almost like a you know, an opera of like different, you know, stories and places and sources. And I was, I was watching this really excellent document. It was sort of a documentary, sort of a fictionalized. It was called The Last Forest on Netflix. It was about, um, I forget which indigenous tribe, but they were, they were sort of, uh, I mean, they're, they've survived, but they've really been struggling with, uh, I think it was people were looking for gold in that context. And they, there was just a lot of, you know, they were one of the, the last tribes that were surviving and they just peeped somehow they were gold surveyors and somehow just the next morning or a couple days later, just having I, coffee. I was thinking about all that. Wow. Yeah. And I actually, I didn't even think about sugar crystals. I don't know why that didn't occur to me. <laughs> no, no. I mean, there's a lot of crystals. I just, yeah, it didn't even just... occur to me. Um, it might be because I don't normally take sugar in my coffee unless Unless John is making Turkish coffee or he's making Cubano coffee, uh, oh, yeah. I just don't take yeah. sugar. So I don't even asso- like I only associate sugar with like special coffee, not <laughs> regular coffee. Oh yeah, for sure. 
No, yeah. that, uh, but you were talking about, you know, divination and stuff and like the Turkish tea readings and the, the reading of tea leaves. And mm -hmm. I mean, that stuff is really fascinating too, for sure. I find that stuff so interesting. Yeah, I do too. Well, we are, uh, we are coming to the end of our, uh, time. So do you have any last thoughts about haiku practice or food, um, or poetry in general or food in general? <laughs> Um, just in the, in the context of your culinary side, Jiki, if anybody's ever looking for some really great examples of, um, seasonal words, I've been reading Jane Reichold's, um, haiku dictionary and boy, I mean, it's, it's thick. It's like a, you could, you know, you could prop up a door with it, but it's like, it's got some great kind of seasonal ideas and just different. I mean, she's so talented and, oh, that's, that's been really helping me to sort of understand kind of the importance of Kigo and sort of how to use it in creative ways. Yeah, hers is great. Um, it's one of the three I, well, you know, it's one of the three I use. And it's definitely, in, that one to me, yeah, is, um, that one's interesting to me also because uh, in English language Saijigi, I don't see a lot of food words codified uh, as Saijigi, or uh, sorry, as Kigo. And uh, she really puts a lot of food words in there. So it's been really, yeah, that's been an especially useful tool. Totally. Very, very true. Well, thank you so much. I'm so glad we were able to uh, make this uh, conversation happen. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me, Allison. Oh, I was so nervous. I hope I didn't pronounce everything wrong. When it comes to the Japanese, it's so hard to pronounce everything right. But <laughs> that's, I mean, I, I, I have to, I think, possibly read some French, uh, a, a haiku in French uh, for uh, the Poetry P podcast uh, this weekend. Ooh, and it's just going to be terrible. It's going to just be like, I might just... <laughs> I might just read the English version and skip the French because no one wants you, to hear you my did French. You a beautiful job on the last one. Oh, everybody enjoyed that so much. That was, was it a Ivanka's that you, that you selected for your, yeah. your judges nomination? That was amazing. That was yeah. so good. Thank you. But it was not in French. And that's what I'm like, I can't pronounce French. I just, <laughs> I, just I can, I can pronounce, pronounce croissant, croissant and that's it. <laughs> it's a beautiful language. I mean, I wish I could pronounce it. I'm trying. I got the Duolingo on my phone, but it's, it's going to take some time. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just I I prefer I, I prefer Spanish because I just like to know that I can say all the letters. <laughs> They're great letters. I mean, Spanish is so so fun to pronounce. Like all those Romance languages are just extraordinary. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. It's been great. Take care, Alison. Have a great night. So nice talking to you. Thank you, Jerome, for our fun and rambling and offbeat conversation. I'm so glad you decided to uh, take a chance on this podcast, even though we had never actually met in real life. Just a reminder, we do have that uh, community blog post at the end of November. Deadline is November 23rd. You submit via Google form. And of course, the link is in the show notes. All right, and on December 6th, that's the season finale with Mark from the Naturalist Weekly blog. Uh, we recorded that, oh, oh, I think back in September, honestly. Um, but it just seemed like it was going to be really fitting for a season finale. So that's coming up. Uh, and one of the things I'm exploring for 2023 is uh, guest posts for the blog as a semi-regular feature maybe every other month so if you uh think you might be interested in doing a guest post 
for the Culinary Saijiki blog, send me an email. And at some point over my uh, little break, I'll set up some more formal guidelines for that. But for now, um, if you heard me mention that and you thought, yes, I want to do that, send me an email. And if you want to, again, get those details on what I sort of plan to do with my downtime and the things I'm considering for this project in the future, go over to the blog and check out the most recent post. All right. Thank you for your listenership. And uh, I hope you have a great week. See you next time.